This is episode 25 with Ran Fishkin. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface Podcast. My guest, Ran Fishkin, has been called the Pope of SEO. He is the founder of a new startup called SparkToro and co-founder and former CEO of Moz, a startup he grew into a $47 million per year profitable marketing software company. In his new book, Lost and Founder, Rand shares a painfully honest memoir of his experience as a startup founder. He talks about depression, layoffs, failure, growth hacks, how much money founders actually make, and more. In this episode, I talk with Rand about his beginnings, the skills, habits, and values that have catapulted Rand's career into starting and growing a startup over the past 14 years, and why he's doing it all over again. Rand, thank you so much for being here. My personal. Yeah, happy to be here. I'm Really excited about um, interviewing you today. And before we get started, I always like to go all the way to the back. Let's kind of rewind to the beginning of RAN. And would you mind sharing a little bit about what was your childhood like? Sure. So I grew up uh, here in the Seattle area, but in a very rural part, um, way out in unincorporated King County, kind of in the forest. Uh, and yeah, spent a lot of time in the woods as a kid. Uh, just wandering around myself and I, yeah, didn't have a whole lot of friends because we were so far away from everyone else, you know, so no one was willing to drive out there, but I got to play video games sometimes, watch movies. Yeah. You know, normal kid stuff. All right. Uh, who would you say influenced you most growing up? Growing up? Gosh, probably my grandparents. Mm -hmm. They lived, um, they still live actually uh, out in New Jersey and... I'd visit them probably a couple times a year, uh, and they were always a huge part of my life. They were actually at my uh, my book reading in New York City, what was that, last week, oh, even cool. though they're now in their 90s. Wow, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. Now, I know you started, uh, you got the entrepreneurial bug from your mom, right? You, you guys started a marketing consulting firm. But I also know that you're not in speaking terms with your father, or you guys don't talk as much. But before, and that was around college when I read that in your book, eh? Before then, uh, how would you say your dad has influenced you? Sure, sure. So, I mean, my dad was, um, I think, sort of really um, sweet and fun up until I was around maybe like 11, 12. I think that's a time when a lot of boys start to have conflict with their, mm -hmm. with their parents, you know, not just, mm -hmm. um, not just their dad. Um, but yeah, I think... You know, my dad was always very, um, very financially focused mm -hmm. and, you know, obsessed with saving money, cutting coupons, getting great deals, um, and very, um, always very worried about money. I think hmm. that probably, yeah, that's probably something that, that he passed on. I'm, I'm different. Um, I, I definitely spend too much. <laughs> I'm not super responsible with, um, with how I spend my money, but I, I think I am um, equally worried about making sure there's enough, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, maybe some of that financial so maybe, concern influence. Maybe not to be so strict with finances because it can affect uh, your life. Yeah, I think that 
I sort of flipped the equation from uh, rather than be cautious with spending, always be thinking about um, how to increase the amount, the total amount, right? Mm. All right. I love it. Now, uh, when I was reading your book, one of the, you know, probably the most mentioned values that uh, in, the, in the book is transparency. Is there any event or person that you could point back that instilled that value in you that you've been cultivating towards now writing something like this? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I wrote about this in the book, but um, I think it's actually the, the opposite situation where uh, there were a lot of people in my you know close life and even even myself in my early professional mm -hmm. days um, being very non-transparent right hiding a lot of you know little secrets and and sometimes some big lies and those sorts of things and that is what made me very transparent I think I'm more a reaction than a uh, follower in that case mm, that's very interesting now I wanted to talk about your blogging practice this is something that has followed your career since the beginning starting when you built seomoss.org in your off hours as a passion project. R blogging about SEO is something very specific. You're not blogging about marketing, you're blogging about specifically SEO. And that can be hard in the sense that you may want to write about other things. So the, the question that I had is, how do you stop wanting to learn everything and just focus on one thing? Oh, um... I mean, I never stopped wanting to learn about lots of other things. And in fact, you can see in the blog that I would occasionally venture outside of the SEO sphere. But I'm the kind of person who, once I find a specific area, uh, I get very obsessed. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a super obsessive person, right? So, you know, oh, this new video game, that's all I want to do. Oh, um, you know, we're traveling to Italy. All I want to do is, you know, find great restaurants and, and go out to eat and, mm -hmm. and take food tours and, you know, whatever it is. So, like, I'll get, I'll get very hyper-focused on something. And for many years, I was hyper-focused on SEO. Um, I think to a certain extent, I, I still am. Maybe not as obsessively, but uh, I still keep up on the news even though i've left moz now and um you know make sure i'm uh paying attention as as things happen in the seo world uh, i read you've been uh, you've been blogging since 2003 since 2003 for an hour a day five times per week in your book you said uh, your two biggest motivators that kept you writing when you first started were your passion for sharing and the youthful craving for attention and the secrets google kept what motivates your writing today Oh, yeah. I mean, today, I think it is a little more uh, around having a topic that I feel like needs some serious attention and should be is something that I really want to share. So, you know, when I write about, for example, the jump shot data or or about, you know, leaving Moz and starting SparkToro or, um, you know, about a particular failing I see in the startup marketing world Um, that's because I haven't, I haven't seen it covered well somewhere else. And I want to try and add some unique thoughts to that. And I'm hoping that lots of other people will see that. So it's kind of like the evolution from the secrets that Google kept to the secrets that the startup world. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just the biases we all have, right. That, that bias us away from potentially pursuing the, the best path. Hmm. Now, you know, before we started the podcast, I, uh, I told you that the first time I met you was at a marketing summit conference, OMS, uh, in 2011. 
uh, and it was really nice to learn about how your speaking career started in 2005. Uh, you you said that you were invited to attend a marketing conference in New York, SES. And you, after that, then you ended up pitching yourself as a speaker for the same conference in another city. And following that experience, you started getting invited to attend many other, many other events. Starting on that first speaking engagement that you ever had, what do you think made you a great speaker? Oh, I was a terrible speaker. What made you, what, what do you think was what you had on your pitch that got them interested in Oh, I think it was mostly the fact that I ran this semi-popular blog. I think mm. the fact that SEO Moz, the blog, had become sort of not well-known, but but reasonably known in the space, at least among SEO insiders. Mm -hmm. um, and I had written a bunch of coverage of the previous conference, and that had gotten that conference lots of attention. So I think they were sort of like, oh, well, this guy was nice to us. Let's invite him and, and be nice to him. I mean, they gave me, what was it? It was like a 15-minute talk on a panel of three people who had a 45-minute slot. Mm. This was barely a speaking gig, but it meant that I could put, you know, speaker on my resume. It meant that I could say, oh, I spoke at this conference. So it was just a, you know, barely, barely a start. Interesting. So it was a combination of... Not just you as a speaker, but what you could bring to the conference with the influence that you were Absolutely. creating on your blog. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I, that's that's very insightful. Um, now that you're more experienced, because I mean, I did tell you, I know that back then in 2005, you didn't consider yourself uh, a great speaker. I am actually a very hard critic. <laughs> like I, I used to go to Catholic church. Now I ended up in Christian church because they have better preachers. <laughs> Is that true? <laughs> Versus a 90-year-old guy in the temple with the echo, <laughs> you know? And in 2011, I can tell you, you're an amazing speaker. I think now, I don't, you, nobody, you don't need validation for that. I mean, I think you, the, the market has given you that feedback. Uh, what's your process for preparing for a speaking engagement today? Yeah, so I, I am a very experienced speaker, right? I probably spend you know, a ton of time on stage every year. And so I, I don't require a ton of prep work, which is nice. I can, mo most all of the prep work is uh, building out the, the outline and the slides mm -hmm. and getting the right visuals and sort of nailing my, the story that I want to tell and explain. And I would say that's um, probably a good, mm, you know, at the low end, maybe 10 hours at the high end, maybe 30 hours. Uh, of work that I'll put into a slide deck. And then, you know, fingers crossed, my hope is that more than one event over the next year or two will want to see that particular presentation. And so I probably build six to eight talks a year that I can use two to three times each. Mm -hmm. So is your creation process happens through putting a deck together? or It's mostly, the, the first part is just the outline, right? So I'll write an outline in uh -huh. email to myself hmm. uh, and then send myself that email. And then from there, I'll build the build out the PowerPoint slides, um, you know, all the titles matching the, the outline and then go get the right visuals. And usually in that process of building out the, out the slides and the visuals, there's a bunch of changes that happen, right? I sort of figure out that this doesn't flow as well as I want it to. And I have a particular story I want to tell here. So I want this um, to have a few more slides or less slides, that kind of thing. Now you're standing behind the stage about to get in front of thousands of people. 
do you have any rituals or anything to get yourself kind of ready to no, uh, no, amplify I, yourself once you're in front of the stage? I'm real weird like that. I, I'm I'm always ready to go on stage. That's uh, yeah. I don't have that. You I never, used to. I mean, I used mm-hmm. to have. You know, I used to be worried and nervous. Mm-hmm. You know, you get that feeling in your stomach. Um, yeah, but I haven't had that in a few years. I actually, I told someone, I told some friends of mine, I kind of miss it. I miss that feeling because it gives you a lot of excitement, adrenaline. right? It bring, yeah, it brings you adrenaline. And, um, and so I have to pump myself up kind of, you know, get on stage and, and I have to have the material give me the emotional energy rather than getting it from whatever nerves or that kind of thing. But, um, no, the part, the funny part is, uh, I get nervous about the portion after I get off stage, hmm. you know, cause then you have to meet a lot of people hmm. and that part is tough for me. Why? Uh, I'm pretty introverted. You know, I, um, I, I like spending time alone and that sort of recharges me. And so meeting a lot of new people and shaking hands and, you know, having those interactions, making sure that I'm, um, you know, being my best self in those, that that's, that's challenging for me, right? That'll, that'll wear me out real fast, but, uh, speaking, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I understand. It's probably hard to make sure that everybody feels special and not ignore because you're yeah. getting, talking to so many people. Absolutely. And then, you know, there's a, the thing that, that gets me the most is someone will say like, oh, I met you four years ago at this conference. You remember me? Ah, crap. I can't remember their name. I mean, maybe I'll remember their face, right? Yeah. But I won't remember their name and I'll feel terrible and they won't feel good yeah. about that. It yeah. sucks. So yeah. that's the part that makes me really nervous. That's why I took a picture. You make, it, make it easier on you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Uh, uh, in 2006, uh, while working with your mom, in your mom's marketing consulting firm, firm, you and your colleague Matt Inman, which who who is a programmer back then, back then still is, open up access to some of the proprietary tools you build to help uh, with your SEO task for your clients. Uh, how did a programmer like Matt ended up working at a marketing consulting company? Yeah, well, we were, remember we were building websites. So, you know, we were doing SEO, but before that we had done website building. And so we had hired Matt to be sort of our web designer developer Got it. Um, person. And he, yeah, he filled that role uh, admirably for, I, I think we worked together for maybe four years, maybe mm. a little longer. So it was, yeah, we had a long stretch there. So there weren't like solutions like WordPress, Squarespace or anything like that. that I would think make WordPress, it easier. WordPress had like come out gosh maybe sometime in the middle there while while matt was working with us so yeah i think maybe we did one or two projects where we did some wordpress customization but this is the very early days of wordpress right Hmm. yeah okay that makes sense and what was your role towards building most proprietary tools well he was coding right yeah so it, it was just me and him sort of being like hey i need to check the rankings of all these sites all the time for our clients can you build me something that'll do it automatically rather than me having to go manually grab these? And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. I'll, you know, I'll build a little thing like that. And then I was like, hey, I have to go get all the page rank values for all these URLs. Can you build me a little thing where I plug it in? It gets me page rank. Oh, and I need these other things. Like, can you get me these other scores from these other sites? And Matt was like, sure, I can go, you know, build a little crawler that'll grab all of these various elements and put them in the format that you want. So that, that was how we built the tools. Hmm. Was that your first experience, kind of like as a product uh, in product development? I guess so. Accidentally, uh, <laughs> yeah, accidentally, sort of unintentionally. Um, I'm trying to think if I did some product 
development earlier. I guess, you know, a lot of the time, like I built this bank's website, you know, designed it, did all the... And so it was sort of like I was working with their team. I'm trying to remember if Matt was there yet. I think he wasn't at Moz yet. Uh, you know, working with their team to design all the functionality and figuring out what are the right tools and what do people need to be able to do and they log in and what, you know, security compliance, which was real weird back in the early 2000s in the in the web space, right? It hadn't yet been very well established. Um, so I guess th- those kinds of projects were product development-like because uh, you're essentially trying to figure out what are the problems people have, how can I solve them with tools and with a website and pages, content, um, but... Yeah, not uh, not a ton. I did a little programming myself, you know, back in those early days. But mm-hmm. between content creation and product development, which one would you say you like the most? If you had to choose just one, I think. I mean, I think products are content, but yeah, um, I would say I probably like the product development hmm. better. Uh, at least, let's see, I like it better when the team is small and focused and sort of has a lot of trust in each other. Mm-hmm. I really dislike product development when that's not the case. You know, big team, lots of distrust, a bunch of politics. Um, you know, that you just get crap products. Doesn't doesn't matter, yeah, how high quality the, the team itself is or how good the market is. When it gets like that, the products are crap. What, what do you think lights you up uh, when you're engaged in developing a product? I love when, you know, when I identify a problem, I'm talking to a bunch of potential customers or, or or I'm watching people do it. And I'm like, gosh, you're doing this over and over again, or, or you have this challenge. What if, what if we could pull in this kind of information and transform it in this way and deliver to this way? And when they get excited about that, uh, I get excited about it. And I get even more excited when I bring it back to some engineers and they're like, Oh yeah, we can totally add that. I think that's probably my favorite part is when I bring up a problem or an issue or you know something I want to add, and someone says, "Yeah, we can do that," hmm. because I hear no all the time, right? Like, I think I think in in product development, working with engineers, most of the time what you hear is, "Nope, nope, nope, too hard. It'll take too long. No, we can't do it. It's already designed this other way. You're changing the scope." You know, that's an interesting interaction that you're bringing up because uh, in your in your experience, what's the best way to get products move forward? Because I'm and I'm thinking specifically about reading the Steve Jobs biography, right? He would have those type of interactions where people would say, "No, this is not possible. No, we cannot make the phone better," and then he had a aggressive approach to saying, "Yes, we can <laughs> and get it done." What's your approach in those situations? I mean, I but would say, just... yeah, I'm not um, as aggressive. I, I was when I was CEO, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, once I no longer had that um, that title, then I, you know, sort of lost lost the ability to do that, right? Because as CEO, you can say, well, either you're doing it or someone <laughs> else is doing it. Uh-huh. So you tell me which one. Got it. Right? Um, For those looking uh, into getting into a product development role or perhaps they are they have an entrepreneurial bug and they want to uh, start a company where they'll have to develop a product or an app or a ser- so, uh, software as a service company what would be your advice um i think spending time with 
in, in those roles before you go out on your own is a great way to go, right? So find a few companies, maybe I, I might bias to smaller mid-sized companies that are putting out product and improving their product at a rapid clip um, because otherwise it can be very frustrating and you'll sort of have a, a, a warped sense of what's possible. Um, and I would, uh, I would try and be in that role, right? I would be the whatever product manager, product lead, um, product designer, whatever the company calls it. I would try to do that for a couple years before I went on my, out on my own. I, I, I wrote about this in the book, right? One of my big regrets is not being able to spend a couple of years in startup land before starting my own. I think, I think Moz's journey is such a long one because I had to learn everything for the first time. There was no, I had no experience whatsoever, right? And so those first, you know, probably 2001 to 2008 or nine, just such an amateur, right? so inexperienced. And then those first couple of years after we got venture backing, 2007 to 2009, I feel like I learned a tremendous amount. Um, And then in, you know, from 2009, probably to 2012, that's, that's when I feel like I was really humming along. You you, you honestly think you'll be a better rand if you, um, better professionally, if you had done this startup? Oh, absolutely. Just, just spent it a, a couple of years, you know, maybe hopping from one to one or two startups, seeing what it was like. Like um, early stage. Yeah, early stage companies, right? Um, seeing the insides and the guts, even if they totally failed, mm-hmm. right? Just having that experience. Oh my gosh. Priceless, invaluable. Hmm. I wanted to talk about social social media and the topic of attention management, which is something that really captivated me about your story. You're you're active on social media, have a big following. It's actually now uh, one of your advantages, as you mentioned in the book. Yeah. Last time I checked your Twitter, you have over 411,000 followers. Something like that, yeah. And you've always been a big evangelist of creating high-quality content. But, you know, creating high-quality content can be a, that's, that's difficult to accomplish in an increasingly distracting world. So this is for a lot of people, you know, it's just the idea of being able to sit down and you're probably may be familiar with the idea of doing deep work. You, you do actually make a small mention of that in your book, Deep Work. Has social media ever become a competing priority for your attention? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think Twitter can be a big distraction. Uh, LinkedIn as well, in, in my world at least. Um, so I think you have to, uh, I actually get most of my big deep work presentation stuff, you know, things that take many hours of focused time. I get that done on weekends, hmm. you know, because social's quiet or at least in the professional world, um, uh, my email's quiet. And so, you know, I can put in a solid, you know, six hours on a Saturday, six hours on a Sunday and get a presentation mostly there. And then maybe the next weekend finish it up. Hmm. How uh how do you, how have you managed uh, social media throughout uh, your career to not let it affect your content creation the quality of your content creation? Oh, interesting. I mean, I think that I think that social does impact the content that I make, right? Because I'll I'll learn a lot of things from social. I'll see what's what people are buzzing about and talking about, and I'll use that in the content that I create. So I think that it can actually add to the quality, but I, maybe you're talking about the distraction factor. Yeah, no, I can see how definitely 
for somebody that is able to make the most of social media, like you said, take the insights and yeah. the interactions. But once in a while, I think it is really a choice between creating incredible content or being very active on social. And here oh, is someone I like see. you. And here is someone like you who is kind of doing both. Like you're in the ah. sweet spot. Yeah. So I think of my social feeds uh, as a place where I create great content, right? So the, my hope is that the tweets that I send are useful or interesting or at least entertaining enough that people think, oh, I, I should continue to follow Rand. I should recommend people to follow him. I should amplify this, uh, those kinds of things. I, I really think of Twitter as a micro-blogging platform. And therefore, the, the blog post, the tweet, the micro-blog is, uh, the, is the content. I realize that many other people don't think of it that way and don't use it that way, right? They send out tweets that are not particularly you know, interesting or high quality. Uh, depending on what your goals are, that might be fine, right? Maybe you're using social just as an engagement. Like, of course. Oh, I'm having fun. But uh, yeah, I think social can be a place where you can create great content too. Would it be fair to say that maybe the sweet spot for you is that you approach social media as a content creator? That's exactly right. Do you engage with everybody who tweets at you? Because, I mean, you have a high... A high number, yeah. But I also respond to all the comments that people leave on Whiteboard Friday or on my blog posts or those kinds of things, right? So mm -hmm. I think of it the same way. For me, social is an extension of the blogosphere, right? And so since I, I think because I have a blog mindset of I put out content, mm -hmm. you know, whether that's in a blog post format or a tweet or a Medium post or a LinkedIn post or a Facebook post or whatever it is, and then people reply and they engage with it, they see it, they amplify it. You know, instead of just linking to it like they used to in the early 2000s, now they can retweet it or, you know, share it on LinkedIn or like it. Um, and then, you know, the comments are, are the comments. Do all these social activities take, uh, are those, do those happen sporadically throughout your day or do you schedule them? Uh, sporadically, sporadically, yeah. So, you know, I don't. Um, I don't have a particular time where I say, oh, I'm going to go answer all my tweets or that kind of thing. I'll have a break in between emails or appointments or meetings or, you know, podcasts or whatever it is. And I'll go answer some stuff and then, you know, heads down again for a little bit. Going next to uh, another quote in your book is great, which I, I, I really love this one. Great founders don't do what they love. They enable a vision. Why is that? Well, because when you found a company, uh, which I just did, I will say I probably spent in the last, what, 60, 90 days, I've gotten to spend 5% to 10% of my time doing what I love, right? Maybe creating some content and, um, you know, working on some of the marketing and doing a little bit of product ideation. And 90% of the time has been lawyers, trademarks, a uh, bunch of tax filings and stuff like that, setting up um, payroll, setting up health insurance, having a health insurance payment not go through correctly, having to reset up the health insurance payment, um, getting a corporate credit card, opening a corporate bank account. You know, the list goes on oh. and on. There's probably 20, 50 more of those things, yes. right? And um, yeah, every day there's just tons of that kind of junk. It's, it's actually finally getting less. But as a founder, you have to do it. 
you're not you're not doing work that you love, right? <laughs> you are you are enabling this thing that you want to exist to be able to exist. And so you you have to get through a lot of slogging of yeah, junky kinds of work, um, not so fun kinds of work, administrative kinds of work to get to get to where you want to be. No, no, that's I love that. Um, you know, after all these struggles and hardship and hardships, and I love this uh, quote. Mostly awful, sometimes awesome experiences. You're really good at coming up with this. <laughs> that was actually so. That was going to be the subtitle of the book. Really? Yeah, yeah. I think I think originally it was lost and founder. Um, the mostly awful, sometimes awesome, you know, journey. So going back to this yeah. quote, mostly awful, sometimes. Um, Awesome experiences. You're starting another company, yeah. And in your book, I love it. When, uh, the, 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 I automatically say, "Why is this guy going to do this all over again?" You wrote uh, that you have a lot to prove, yeah. And you know, and I actually recently read an article, and that that happens to be a common uh, trend in founders that the chip in their in their shoulders is that they feel they have to do to prove something. Yeah. But you also said that this is an unhealthy motivation. Mm. And so talking to a guy that is very, very familiar with the word optimizing, <laughs> what, are, what do you think found you and founders in similar shoes are optimizing for in their lives when they follow something that they are, are acknowledging that is unhealthy? Hmm. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure that optimization is what's going on right there. Right? I don't think they're saying, what is the most optimal thing for my life? I, I'm not sure that that's it. I think that instead, there's these other motivations, right? The motivation of, I have people I need to prove wrong, or I need to prove to the world that I can do this. Or, and this is true for me, I need to prove to myself that I can do this. Hmm. And that's not about optimizing your life, right? That's about uh, something else entirely, right? That... Um, that you recognize maybe is suboptimal from a, you know, balance of what you'll get to do and um, how fun or happy or healthy your life will necessarily be. And you're making that sacrifice because you believe this other thing, right? I believe this other thing. I believe that when I look back on my professional career a decade, two decades from now, I would not um, I would not be proud of myself if I, you know, took a job at a big company for, with a high salary and just sort of put in my 40 hours and mm -hmm. yep, just wouldn't, it just wouldn't make me excited. I, it would probably make me wealthier, but, um, but I, I think what I, what I want to be able to do is to, um, have a different story. Hmm. And so I'm, I don't know. I guess I'm optimizing for the story that I want rather than the healthiest, you know, best emotionally healthiest life. Now, you said that your, your mission in life is to help others do better marketing. So with Spartoro now moving on your new new startup, what does your, how, how does Spartoro align with your mission on helping uh, others do better marketing? Sure. Yeah, so the big problems that um, that my co-founder and I saw in uh, a lot of marketing was that folks would put all of their effort and energy into the easiest sort of most discoverable paths and channels 
and sources to reach their audience. So, for example, many, many startups think, okay, uh, I want to reach, I don't know, interior designers with my new, you know, lighting product. Um, I, you know, home automation lighting product, right? I am going to buy some Google ads and buy some Facebook ads. And that's it. Maybe some Instagram ads, right? Like that, because those are the easiest channels that, that people are most familiar with, especially people outside of the marketing world. They're sort of like, yeah, that's how you reach everybody nowadays, right? Okay, I'll do those three things. And but those getting from other feeds. Right. And so those, those channels are extremely expensive because everybody uses them, right? Uh, they're very crowded. It's really tough to stand out. Uh, in the advertising world, you know, it's well known that your cost per click and your cost per conversion is going to be sky high if no one's ever heard of you. But if lots of people have already heard of you and you have a brand that's notable and you've done lots of things to organically at- earn attention, that's going to be much easier, right? And so um, our our contention was that that a lot of that marketing behavior is super biased to the channels people are already familiar with. And that in fact, if you were to, when you ask the question to someone, hey, all right, you're building this new product. Where do interior designers hang out? Who do they listen to? What do they pay attention to? What, um, what YouTube channels do they watch? What podcasts do they listen to? Uh, what events do they go to? Uh, what blogs do they read? The answer is, well, uh, I maybe know a couple here and there, but I'm not really sure. I don't even know how I'd figure that out. Now, some marketing teams will go and they'll pay an agency to go build them a list of here's all the places that your audience hangs out. Um, Some people will do it manually. What does that process look like? They go to Google, they search for interior design, and then they search for interior design blog. It's like an SEO-driven, keyword-driven approach. Yeah, or then they go to Twitter and they search for interior design and they look for the people who have the most followers who have interior design in their bio or Mm -hmm. the same thing on Instagram. Yeah, And of course... We all know this is a terrible process, right? Like that just because you have lots of followers and you put interior design in your bio or just because you rank highly in Google for interior design blog does not mean you are the best read interior design blog. It doesn't mean that you have the most interior designers that you're reaching. Amen. I've done that process, by the way. So yeah, I'm yeah. glad that you're bringing this up. Right? And, and if you go to Twitter and you do the same thing, like, oh... You know, um, this person, they bought a bunch of followers and then they use that to get a bunch more followers and they use the follow, follow back strategy to get yeah. a bunch of followers, right? And then they added South Pacific travel to their bio. And now a bunch of travel companies think they're real important. And so they give them free <laughs> trips, which happens, right? There's yeah. a, a ton yeah. of that happens. Yeah. That's, that's how Instagram works right now. Um, and, and this is dumb. What you actually want to do, right? In your ideal world, what you'd want to do is you'd want to find tons and tons of people who are interested in traveling to the South Pacific or who have traveled there. Uh, and then you want to find, uh, or, or, you know, or in the other example, you want to find tons of people who are interior designers or lighting designers um, and they have that or interior decorators, right? And th- that is their profession. And you could figure that out by connecting their LinkedIn profile to all their other profiles, right? And say, okay, here's a thousand people who are interior de- designers. Here's a thousand people who are interested in South Pacific travel. What do they collectively most follow, listen to, read, attend, pay attention to? That's, th- that's the true process that you'd want to do. But that's very difficult, right? People pay 
you know, incredible amounts of money, tens of thousands of dollars to run surveys specifically to those individuals to try and get their, you know, their feedback. Um, we can do that. That is what SparkToro can solve. So we can, we, what we can do is we can look at a set of a thousand people on the internet who are interior designers and through, you know, lots of natural language processing and big data um, and a bunch of basically simplistic way to think about it is the Venn diagram overlap of what do they all follow, listen to, share, tweet, like, you know, uh, amplify on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram. Uh, we can produce that list for you. What's your opinion on the tactic of paying somebody to post on their Instagram, oh, right? Because yeah. I mean, right now I was, uh, I think... Uh, yeah, the classic, like what people call influencer marketing. Yeah, like yeah. somebody on Instagram with 100,000 followers, depending on the, the quality that they have in their channel, they they can get paid up to $5,000 per post. I think I read that on... I mean, uh, that's that changes, right? But yeah. obviously there is big money I mean, being moved. Vin to, Diesel got... What, or no, The Rock. The Rock yeah. got a million dollars to post on his Instagram feed. How do you feel about that? That type of tactic. Paying somebody I mean, to... Is that genuine? Is that aligned with... For The Rock, I mean, he works really hard and he has to eat cod every day. So I feel like, you know, we should give him a pass. But everybody else... <laughs> um, yeah, no, I would say uh, there's almost definitely better ways to spend your money. As a marketer, almost definitely better ways to spend but your with, money. But with the Spark Toro, with the idea that you're telling me with the Spark Toro, you may find accounts, right? Oh, also? yeah. I guess there... So sure, SparkToro might highlight a, an account on Instagram that's well followed by your audience, and you might decide that what you want to do is a sponsored post with them. That's fine. SparkToro is not about trying to control what you do with that information. It's merely trying to make that information accessible uh, quickly and accurately. And that, that's, that's what's missing. So uh, my hope is that people are very broad in their follow-up, right? So if they see an interesting Instagram account, they might find ways to organically get in front of that account. Maybe a sponsored post is fine, but they would also find a podcast and say, okay, should we sponsor that podcast? Should we try and become a guest on that podcast? Oh, they might find an event. Got it. Hey, lots of our audience goes to this event in Sacramento. Maybe we should have a booth there. Maybe we should go there. Maybe we should try and get be a speaker there. Uh, lots of our audience pay, uh, follows this blog. I think they accept guest posts. Let's try and guest post at this blog. Or let's buy some advertising from this blog. Or w whatever it is, right? The marketing activity follow-up, I think, can be extremely broad. The problem is that those activities are so incredibly narrow right now, right? Google and Facebook are something like 85% of the advertising market. Mm -hmm. Right, online advertising market—that's ridiculous. You you should you should be spreading around your marketing efforts to the places that truly influence your audience, and I guarantee it's not just Facebook ads and Google ads. Hmm. How do you envision SparkToro will change the world? I mean, it's my hope is not that it changes the whole world, but that it changes the marketing world by removing some of these biases and frustrating processes hmm. all right now we're about to wrap up uh i have a section called uh, how i work section you probably here this is a very popular series and i actually really like it uh so we'll just go through a couple of questions brief answers are fine starting with what's your morning routine like yeah i uh i get up i have some physical therapy exercises that i do every morning 
um, sort of core strengthening stuff. And then, because uh, I have a terrible back, and then I reward myself for completing those exercises by being able to check my phone. <laughs> so I can't look at my phone until I do the exercises. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And then I'll uh, shower and get ready for the day. And um, nowadays, uh, you know, it's every day is different. You know, it's just sometimes there's book stuff. Sometimes, a lot of times I'm on the road and I'm traveling for events. Um, but uh, yeah, when I'm home, I have a shed out back of my house, a little tool shed that's been converted into an office. Hmm. Go out there, you know, do my uh, meetings and interviews and chats with potential customers and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, talk to my co-founder and we, we crank on it. One word that best describes how you work. Um, intermittently. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, seriously, I'm uh, I'm someone who I think I've recognized that uh, I I actually don't I don't work well when it's okay eight hours a day. You know, from nine a.m. to five p.m. you're working, and then the rest you know the rest of the time you're not doing any work. I, I take breaks between nine a.m. and five p.m. and I work between five p.m. and one a.m. and you know all that kind of stuff. Current computer? Oh, uh, let's see. I've got a Dell laptop and an Acer desktop. Oh, PC guy. Yeah, PC. Current mobile device? This is a Pixel 2, which oh. is excellent. And I'm on the Project Fi. Oh, my God. Being able to land in Europe and having 4G, you know, LTE, uh, uh, just as fast as it is at home and the same cost, Mwah, just beautiful. I is love that it. part of the phone or the service? Part of Project Fi. Project Fi. Yeah. Pro uh, so that's Google's, you know, wow, I'm provider. It's incredible. That. It's so cheap. It's so much cheaper than what we were paying T-Mobile. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> I love these questions. Look what just came out of it. Yeah, yeah. Project Fi is incredible. <laughs> um, app software tools you can't live without. Well, that you I really appreciate. Sure, <laughs> sure. you make it <laughs> you don't have them. Yeah, so... Let's see, one of the ones that always surprises me because it's probably the, the project and product that the least work at Moz ever went into was uh, Fresh Web Explorer. It's kind of like Google Alerts, but just uh -huh. way better. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, I have, I have an alert set up for SparkToro and for my name, and so I can see whenever anybody's talking about me online. It's great. I love it. Um, let's see, the, another tool that I can't live without, Pocket. Pocket. I'm a huge Pocket addict. I constantly find articles where i'm like ah, i don't have time to read this right now i save it to pocket yeah. i read it on a plane hmm. love that all right what every day thing are you better at than everyone else email 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 is um my uh my old ceo at moz always described it as like email is your superpower and i'm not that good at email So I don't like emailing with you. <laughs> What, why is, uh, how is email your superpower? Um, let's see, because I, I think because I'm fast at it, because I'm good at conveying nuance over email and picking up on nuance in emails hmm. and being thoughtful and empathetic in the responses that I send, um, in conveying lots of information, but not droning on and on. Um, so yeah, I'm just a concise, high quality emailer. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's sort of a weird superpower. But thoughtful but and empathetic. Yeah, yeah. Like a lot, a lot of people are like... Time, right? To be thoughtful and empathetic. I think for many people it does. For me, that's just my natural way of emailing. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I, I don't know. I can't explain it exactly, but it's an odd superpower to have, but email is definitely it. 
What's your workspace, your workspace setup like? I have a standing desk um, with like a little, you know, uh, mat underneath it so mm -hmm. that it's sort of soft and not, not too hard on my feet and my joints and stuff. Uh, and a giant monitor. I think it's like a 36-inch monitor. Um, I haven't gone double monitor yet, but probably that's coming. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it works great. Yeah, it's hard to get used to the double monitors. Uh, what's your best time saving life hack? Or um, I highly recommend a single channel of communication. I think that so many people are distracted by, oh, I have I have my Twitter mentions and DMs, and I have my LinkedIn, I have my Facebook Messenger, and I have WhatsApp, and I have Instagram messages, and I have email. And I think by routing everything to one channel, basically by saying, oh, if you want to get in touch with me, here is the one and only way to do it. So my voicemail says, I don't accept voicemail. Email me, right? Hmm. E everything for me comes through email. For you, it might be Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or whatever you love, right? But having a single channel where all of your communication is managed rather than these multiple ones, huge, huge life hack. Yeah. And obviously, you're referring to direct communications, not, not the micro engagements on social. Right, sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite uh, to-do list manager or tool? Oh, I, I use email for that too. Really? Yeah. So basically, if it's not in my email, I don't do it. Hmm. Right? So if I have a presentation that I yeah. need to create, I will email myself the outline of the presentation, and then that sits in my email, in my inbox, until I clear, you know, I clear it out by building the presentation and emailing it to the organizer. Right? And that's my, okay, now that to-do list item is done. If I have something, you know, um, today I have a bunch of uh, receipts that I need to scan and then send to my accountant uh and so that's sitting in my email as like a to-do item right? love it yeah what do you listen to if you do while at work no actually i need to totally silence silence yeah i am i'm a no uh no music guy uh, what are you currently reading or listening to Ooh, yeah if any. um let's see i got nila for merchants onlyness and i have started reading that um and i like it a lot i want to try and finish that up uh i also have oh i can't remember the name of the book i i really like um mystery kind of novels like sort of light light fiction uh, uh sorry light literature fiction mystery stuff so um i have i have a couple of those that i need to dig into what do you like about nonfiction? this being always a weakness on my end to to, to go i into. don't i don't really like nonfiction. actually no actually i mean what do you like about fiction oh yeah funny no i love i love fiction fiction is um for me it is it's not just an escape it's a way to um connect with people right with characters hmm. with um situations and events that that i'll never experience And um, and I love that. I love the the diversity of experience that you get to have through through a book, right? I was always I I like escapism in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, you know, I like it when I when I find a great movie that's you know that sort of takes me out of myself and, and really brings me into what's happening on the screen. Um, I have that the same thing with music, right? Where it can transform an environment i think that's why i can't listen to music while i work mm -hmm. um i have the same thing with books any kind of media hmm. what's your sleep routine like historically not good um 
but this is gonna be weird. Since leaving Moss, it's gotten really good. I'm 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 a great sleeper now. It's, it's not a great sleeper, but I'm a a perfectly decent sleeper. Right. Um, now that I'm now that I'm running my own company again, I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> yes. What do you do when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused? That probably means that I need to take a break. Just a. A complete break from from what I'm doing and do something completely different. You know, go mess around on Reddit or go read a book or you know watch some TV, play a video game, something like that. Oh, I'm just curious what does messing around on Reddit means. Usually, just look oh yeah, of content or yeah, exactly like going and checking out some subreddit escapism. And, yeah, escapism totally. <laughs> right, the you know I like the. What's the Evil Buildings subreddit? That's a fun one. Um, <laughs> Accidental Wes Anderson subreddit. That's a great one. Yeah. Do you even, do you do you even do you ever incorporate? Um, you know, you're reading from fiction books and looking at random topics into your presentations. I, I yes, guess. all the time. So that's how that part of your life impacts your professional work, right? Yeah, it's pretty funny, uh, especially because a lot of times. It, you know, I'll, I'll find a little rabbit hole and then I'll start Googling around in uh -huh. there and I'll find very interesting results, right? And like, oh, well, why is this ranking here? I think in one of my recent presentations, there was a, there was like a fantasy, children's fantasy fiction author who was like outranking all of the uh, websites about Egyptian history for, you know, this particular thing. And of course, his history is fictional, So all these kids are like finding the top result, you know, for Egyptian history and they're getting, it's the guy who wrote the Percy Jackson books or whatever. Anyway. So yes, often I will find interesting case studies that I then use in presentations. It's like escapism almost becomes a tool to make your presentations fun. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. This is great. In the last uh, three years, what have you become better at saying no to? I think I had some toxic sort of professional relationships and i i've been able to get away from that i'm not sure if that's me saying no or them saying no but um yeah that's been good maybe i've had to say i have to say no to a lot of conferences but i've had to do that for a long time so i'm not sure that's just the last three years you, you have to say no to a lot of conferences. oh you know what i've said uh -huh. no to uh yeah. starting a few years ago I have universally said no to roundup posts. You know, people email you and they're mm -hmm. like, hey, I want, um, I'm doing a roundup on, I don't know, what people think about Google's meta keywords or meta, title, meta description change. And they your opinion as part yeah, of Yeah, exactly. And the hope is, right, like, oh, well, we got these 30 experts to share their opinion. Come on, 30 experts. Now you're supposed to go amplify it for us. Ugh, I hate it. So if somebody reaches out and oh, because says... because they expect you to promote it. That's right. And they actually even ask you. Uh, as part of the deal or usually after right they'll do it at the end so do you and then you feel obligated I guess. it feels like it, it, it's just a tactic right it's not organic no uh, yeah and so i have i just reply to them and i say i'm opting out of round roundups i think they're kind of terrible and i have a little link that i send people to <laughs> that's like see i did this blog post about why roundups are terrible and maybe you should consider doing something else but you know Unless somebody's coming from a way of value, right? Somebody wants to include like a quote in a book or something along I those mean, lines. I mean, quote in a book is a little different, right? Got but it. but these roundup posts in particular... Because it's like building. It's hacky. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a growth hack that has just gone rampant. Yeah. 
best advice you ever received? Um, I mean, my grandfather was always big on humility and kindness. Hmm. And I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that fits into like one piece of advice, but I think that that uh, biasing to those two things, even at the expense of lots of others, has... No, no I think that's great. Good. And I can definitely you exemplify both of those. You always come up, come across as a very kind person and and humble. As far as my what well, I think I, of yeah. you, right? I think I nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You see, that's part of your humble. Well, <laughs> it's part of my realism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's something that most people don't know about you? Being so transparent at this point, that this should be an interesting one. Oh gosh. Um. I love frogs. <laughs> Most people don't know that I, I... You love frogs. I really love frogs. I, uh, when I was a kid, out back of our house, if you walked, if you hiked into the woods for about 15 minutes, there was like a, a, a pond uh, that... I don't know what it was. There was like no predators or something. And so these frogs would just lay tons of eggs in this pond. And then, you know, come... I think it was like late spring when, when all the eggs would hatch. You know, you get these tiny little fingernail-sized frogs... Um, that the tadpoles would turn into uh, just hopping around like literally hundreds of them around this pond. And I, I loved it. That was like my favorite thing as a kid. Um, and so wherever we go, I'm always like, Oh, I wonder if they have any interesting frogs here. I love going to the zoo and seeing yeah, like, was, poison dart frogs <laughs> yeah, and stuff the, like that. I was just thinking about that when you yeah. <laughs> went to the zoo last weekend. Uh, so, okay. We've, before the last question, uh, where can people find you online? Uh, on Twitter, I'm, I'm pretty active at Randfish. Uh, and you can always email me too, rand at sparktoro.com. And if you're interested in the blog, uh, that's sparktoro.com slash blog. All right. Final question. If today was your last day on Earth and everything you've created was all to disappear, but you could leave your loved ones and the world behind with three truths about life, what would those be? Oh, that's intense, man. <laughs> that's why it's the last that's, question. That's messed up. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I don't. That's that's too heavy. Um, that's why it's the last question. Gosh. Uh, yeah, and you can see. take your time. Uh, okay. Well, I think being uh, being kind and accepting of other people is a is an absolutely wonderful quality. Um, And you only have to, but I think you, you can stop and should stop at the point of accepting people who don't accept others. Um, I, think, I think that it is appropriate and right to um, shame and marginalize and try and, try and push uh, people who are not accepting and kind of other people um, out of the mainstream. I don't think that's, I'm worried that that's becoming like a, an opinion that is an opinion in American culture rather than something that's just fundamentally wrong and evil. And we all agree that it's wrong and evil. Um, I want to go back to that. <laughs> I want to go back to not being kind and accepting of people is, is wrong and evil. Uh, let's see. I think that I think family can come from lots of places that are not just your blood relations that you can build. You can build a wonderful life of, filled with love and it does not have to be people only that you are related to um yeah that's been that's been sort of a, a wonderful thing for me too mm -hmm. 
Uh, let's see. I would also say if everyone is doing something one way, there's always value in considering an alternative. Now, interesting. That the first one you say is be, be kind and accepting, but... But don't accept non-acceptance. Don't accept bad behavior in one way or... Um, I mean, I think bad behavior is... Bad intentions. Bad, bad intentioned people, I guess. Um, even those things are forgivable and workable with. I think where, where I stop saying be accepting is do not be accepting of people who don't accept others. Oh, I like that. Okay. So be kind and accepting, but don't accept people who don't accept others. Exactly. I love it. The family is more than just flat. And and then the, the last one I I think is um, see the value in doing things in different ways yeah. than what most people do. Yeah. There's there's a lot of value in being the exception to the rule. Ron, thank you so much. I really enjoyed my time today. Oh, my pleasure, man. Yeah. Thank thrilled you. Thrilled to be here. And that was my interview with Brand Fishkin. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access this episode's notes alongside other resources at bit.ly slash BTS EP025. Again, that's bit.ly slash BTS EP025. Finally, if you enjoy listening to this interview, the best way to support me and this podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in and remember to live a life that moves you. <laughs>